This is Heated, a podcast where we're showing how the COVID and climate crisis stories are actually the same story. I'm Emily Atkin. This podcast grew out of the Heated newsletter I created on Substack. It's easy to find at heated.world, or you can just search Heated Newsletter in Google. It'll come up. Well, can you believe it? This is the sixth and final episode of this limited-run Heated podcast series. We launched this series because we were straight up confused about how to think about climate change during the COVID-19 crisis. And sometimes you just got to get together with another human being and hash it out. So we asked some of the smartest people in climate and media and science and community organizing, and they were down. So now we have this podcast series, which will exist in perpetuity. Lucky us. Today, we've got MSNBC's Ali Velshi. That's right. The real, except no substitutes, Kenyan-born Muslim from Toronto. Ali takes us behind the curtain and shares his inside view of how the vegan sausage is made inside a mega media corporation. He's also really candid about his path from being an extreme weather reporter to a business reporter to where he is today. Ali takes his platform seriously, and he's partnering with other folks at MSNBC, like Katie Turr and others, to get climate reporting front and center on their massive platform. I could not be happier to have Ali as our guest for the final episode in this podcast experiment. The community that's gathered around these episodes has been an inspiration. The feedback, the encouragement, the way you've shared these things, it's really incredible, and we so appreciate the way you've embraced this work. We did it for you. We wanted to use this moment in time to capture these conversations, get them in the world, and have them ready for when we need them again. I'm guessing you're here because you value these conversations and this approach. We'd love to make more of these. If that sounds good to you, here's how you can help. With just a few bucks, you can help cover the costs to make these and get us set up for more. We've had nearly 100 folks step up and we hope you'll join them. Heated is a 100% independent project. We get no corporate or foundation support. If you're feeling it right now, just press pause and head over to our GoFundMe. Search Heated Podcast. Or stay tuned at the end to find out how you can make a difference. Enjoy the chat with Allie. I sure did. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for taking some time out of your day for climate change. We should be doing it every day. So uh, thank you for continuing to force the issue on us. And I mean that in a good way, because what we tend to do in this world is jump from crisis to crisis. And it's becoming increasingly obvious that the one crisis that looms in the background all the time gets shoved out by other crises. So I think it's important that we try and continue to have this conversation. I mean, that's my whole life. Climate reporting for seven years and you're just like, no, not another crisis to distract you from this crisis. Come on. Yeah. Literally, the only thing I do is just poke people and tell them to pay attention to climate change. Like, hey, can you, yeah, can you do yeah. it? Can you do it? So thank and you. This, this one's interesting, right? Because it's an interesting blueprint for the idea that what are the things that make us all fear this, right? It's the urgency. It's the unknown outcome. It's the suddenness. You know, you're suddenly you're healthy, then you're not. And then you know people who have died. And so it's this compressed timeline that we know nothing about that is scaring us. And with climate, 
we just don't experience it the same way. And sometimes we do because we see a hurricane or we see a flood or because we've got kids who sort of see it differently. But that's what the issue is, right? Everything else seems really urgent and we, we don't think of climate that way. And it is instructive to sort of say, how do we use that lens through which to look at climate? Yeah, and I also like to say a lot that there's plausible deniability with climate change, whereas you can have a loved one or a relative die from the effects of climate change and still be able to convince yourself that it wasn't that, whereas with coronavirus, it's like there's no denying that that's what it is. But I definitely want to start by having you tell listeners a little bit about just sort of your personal journey into climate reporting. We aren't seeing a lot of broadcast reporter interest in climate change just as a subject. And I see it happening with you. I see your interest growing. So can you just tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming someone who's interested in climate change, specifically with reporting? Yeah. So I have a history of being a reporter who explains complicated things to people, right? It's usually, it came from economics, but it morphed into other things. And like a lot of reporters, I read and I understood climate and climate change from the perspective of someone who reads. And I certainly always thought I was on the right side of it. I don't, I don't ever recall being on the wrong side of it. But I think it was probably, I don't know, five years ago or something when suddenly it became about the fact that this isn't going to inevitably solve itself. The idea that right-minded people all sort of probably share my view of this isn't going to actually do anything and that our regulations are not built to actually acknowledge it and our media is not built to actually acknowledge it. And we have this information ecosystem that pushes results that are not actually the ones we share. And so I started becoming more involved in understanding it and trying to understand it better. But even, you know, as recently as four or five years ago, it became hard to say, look, I can explain to you why the Dow dropped a thousand points today. How do I explain to you two degrees compared to pre-industrial times in a hundred years? Like, how do I make that understandable to people? And how do you do it on TV? Right, because we have a way of doing things, and they don't lend themselves to large conceptual discussions. But then what started to happen is two things. One is the movement started to get bigger and started to bring people into it who wouldn't normally have anything to do with Earth Day or Oceans Day or climate issues, right? It became kids teaching their parents that, okay, this isn't going to change unless we're all involved in it. And the second thing is we started to associate it with things that were urgent that did lend themselves to television, like hurricanes, like wildfires, like flooding. And what I found was that every time I made that connection on TV, I would get people really angry at me. They'd say, this isn't the time to talk about climate. There's fires burning through California or wherever they might be. Or this is a disaster. This is a flood or this is a hurricane. And I started to wonder about why not? This is the only time I have your attention. And the two things are actually connected. It's not like they are unconnected. And there's a real science as to the way hurricanes form now and how they develop and why temperature makes them more intense and the damage that they do and why things flood more than they do. But there was a real, we've always had this sense. And I used to have it when I reported on shootings where people would say, now's not the time to talk about gun control. I was wondering, it's like, I feel like this is exactly the time to talk about it. So that all was happening. And then people like you were all in the space sort of trying to force 
the discussion. And I think it all just sort of started to morph that there were books out there that sort of spoke to me in my language. There were candidates who started to make this an actual priority. There were people who started to build policy around it. There were articles written that didn't feel like the same. They felt like, let me just tie every part of your life to this one really important discussion. And it all came together and caused me to understand that this is my job. Being on the right side of the issue is fine. I'm a member. That's fine. The job is actually using your platform in which you can express to people why something is important and what role they might play in it, whether it's a policy role or whether it's an individual behavior role, and even what the competing interests are within those roles, right? Because we can meet up with people who all think that they want to do A, B, and C to fight climate change, but what they might be missing is that D is a little bit out of your control and it's way bigger and, and perhaps more impactful. So it fit into the world in which I break things down and explain it to people. And it was helped along by others smarter than me, like you, who really devote yourselves to this. So I can sort of pick and choose and be selective about some of the material you publish and say, hey, wait a second, I have a way that I can tell my viewers about this. So that's, it really was an evolution, but it was availability of information, availability of disinformation, and a growing need for people to understand better information about climate. Was there any moment for you where you realized that it was also part of your job to speak truth to power on this issue? Because one of the things I've seen you do, I've seen Katie Turr do, is have an increased focus on the powerful drivers that have driven climate denial in our society and try to explain that to people. And I wonder about that specifically because I also see that as an opportunity for broadcast and cable news in particular to make the issue more interesting to people, talking about climate change in the language of corruption, as opposed to the language of science and the language Mm. of gloom and doom. Is that part of your evolution? And is that indeed an easier story to tell on broadcast? It's part of my evolution in that that became part of my evolution as a journalist. Again, probably five or six years ago, maybe seven years ago, when I realized that having people on TV to give you their PR honed pitches about their business or their company is not serving my viewers' interest, right? I would go to award ceremonies in New York for broadcasters around the world or journalists, print journalists, and we would give them awards. These are people who were under threat from their government and they would wear bulletproof vests to do their job. And I was thinking, yeah, I don't really do a lot of that. Like I book people through their PR agencies and they come on my show and I I interview them and they tell me about stuff. And I thought, we call ourselves journalists, but these people speak truth to power to the extent that they endanger their lives every single day. Maybe I can not endanger my life every day, but maybe I can actually start to say, hey, what can I give my viewers that's not what they usually get in these things? And, and that as a business journalist, that's interesting because when you're a business journalist, most of your interviews are CEOs or marketing people and things like that. So you are just constantly being barraged by their hard sell. They spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars being trained to deliver, and you act as a conduit for that to your audience. And I, you know, I, I sort of said, this can't be what this is about. So why not hit this disinformation part of things hard? And by the way, this was at the same time that the concept of fake news and lying on the internet was becoming very big. This was pre-Trump. And I just thought that was an interesting economic phenomenon, right? That people can make money by selling BS on the internet. I didn't realize this would become a mainstay of our lives and our political life. But I thought to myself, there's a place where I can do this. I can sort of pick apart 
things that people are told that they're led to believe because we are a somewhat unquestioning society because we don't hate our government, generally speaking. So we kind of let people go ahead with the stories that they tell. And particularly in business journalism and economic journalism, in which a lot of this climate denial is rooted, we don't do enough of a job of telling people whom we interview, holding them to the fire because we want them to come back and interview with us again. So what you trade off, and maybe it's my age and how long I've been in this, is I've decided I don't need the access anymore. I don't need you to give me your interview anymore. I'm a journalist. I've actually got resources. I've got ways in which to get to the bottom of the story. And that's how I'll do it. And if I never get a fancy interview again, or another CEO or the CEO of an oil company, or a politician who wants to talk about this, that's fine. Because they've got lots of airtime. You can always hear from them. There is no time that you won't hear from the message that a coal company or an oil company or a CEO or a politician who is involved with those industries, there's no time you won't get that message. You just don't know that you're getting it all the time, but you're getting it. But we have to work hard to bring the other message into mainstream media. Now, here's the thing, and I want to be really fair about this to people like you. The message exists. Katie Turr and I have not discovered it. Others did the hard work and are doing it there. All we're trying to say is that we've got a built-in audience. How do we introduce this other method of reporting, this other method of accountability, this other method of bearing witness to an audience that already exists that might be a little bit complacent about it? And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to marry the two. I've told you this before. If I spent my life doing it, I wouldn't be a better climate journalist than others who are out there. But boy, can I take their work and amplify it. If I can do that, then that's success. Have you seen a change at all in how receptive people are at MSNBC to telling climate change stories on the air, whether that be people in terms of being able to pitch stories or even in your audience? Yes, so we have a climate unit now, which we never had before. When did that uh, happen? It probably corresponded with around the time that we did that presidential forum that you were at in Washington and Georgetown, so it was in the fall. And we sort of decided that we would have a climate unit and it would bring together the disparate parts of the business that deal with it, right? So that's the business and technology side, the climate and weather side. I mean, that's not, not a part of the story. We spend a lot of time explaining to people climate is not weather, but actually our climate and weather people do know a lot about this stuff, uh, our medical unit. And we meet once a week and we bandy around stories and we sort of try and determine, okay, this is a great story for NBC.com. This is a great story for NBC News Now, which is our streaming service. This one would be great for MSNBC. This one would be great for NBC Network. This is one that the reporter can work on and distribute across platforms. And we share articles with each other and we share discoveries. And what ends up happening is, A, there are a bunch of people in the organization who are just now more current and smarter about the topics. B, we know who the guests are, whom we can book. C, we know where to look for this information. And D, it starts to make its way into things where maybe nothing else will happen except we'll tell you that a really important report came out and I will break it down for you on screen and so you can hear it. So next week when you hear that another report came out, you'll have some institutional memory. So now it becomes part of our DNA and it becomes part of what our viewer is used to hearing. So climate now doesn't seem like some weird left turn to a different discussion. So we now have it as part of mainstream discussions. We now have it as part of all policy discussions that we have, or at least most. And that helps a great deal. So you've seen in the last couple of weeks in mainstream media, pictures of smog that aren't there in places. Now, I don't think most people think, wow, coronavirus is the solution to climate change. But boy, that's, that's pretty good TV. Says to you, 
we can solve these problems. So maybe how do we solve this without it being a shutdown, without it being about coronavirus? Yeah. That does mean, that is proof, right? That if you stop running your engines as much and you stop burning fossil fuels as much, some good may come of it. So let that be instructive to us. It's true, but I also see some of these stories about how the coronavirus pandemic is cleaning our air as almost like a smoke screen, in a, in, yeah. not to put it so literally, but as a smoke screen to what is actually happening during the pandemic, yes. which is that we're seeing all these regulatory rollbacks, yes. climate regulatory right. rollbacks, state, local, and federal, and we're not actually seeing that much coverage on it from broadcast news. There are lots of Americans including a lot of older Americans who do consume their news through network news. And for a lot of reasons, most of which are about the fact that network news has a smaller footprint, far more viewers, but far less time to cover stories, these things are definitely harder to get on network news. So I think that criticism is A, valid, and B, it's probably valid regardless, because that's how these things slip through. Right, that's what happens. When we're all busy watching something else, someone else says, oh, it's a hard time for business, so let's make it easier for everybody to make money. And there are a lot of fronts on which that makes sense. And that can become a slippery slope. And so we have to be okay with the idea that, okay, we may allow business owners with a slightly lower than acceptable credit score to get a loan during this time, because if they can stay open, they can pay 10 of their employees and that's money that's not going to be used for unemployment. Okay, so there's a place where we might allow some like regulatory slippage. We have to sort of come to terms with the fact that from a climate perspective, we've had decades of regulatory slippage, right? It always just slips. And so we can't do that because the regulatory stuff when it comes to climate change is the absolute lowest hanging fruit, right? That's the easiest stuff that we can do to get better. Even if we do all the right regulatory stuff, we still may not get to where we need to get. So we need behavioral change. We need scientific development. We need media change. So the regulatory stuff's easy. So my attitude is let's not break that. EPA regulations are about the easiest thing in the world, right? The auto companies completely subscribe to them. They will bake that cake, whether you bake it round or you bake it square, they can bake it. They would just like to bake it once for decades. Electricity utility companies, same thing, right? They can build a coal-fired plant. They can build a gas-fired plant. They can build solar plants. They can build wind, but they're not going to build them every three years based on the changing We need clarity to know that this is where it's going to keep going. So let's not do that. If we fundamentally know that for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we need cleaner energy, let's not mess with regulations that affect infrastructure. So a lot of the rollbacks that we've been looking at in the last month are stuff that affect actually the way people do things and infrastructures. So that's what I don't think we should fool around with. Fool around with other things around the edges that are not going to actually cause damage to the climate in the long term. We have this one crisis ongoing that's threatening to kill millions of people. And while we're doing that, we're worsening another crisis that threatens to kill more people. So in my mind as a journalist, climate change becomes more newsworthy right now than less newsworthy because it's worsening. Because before it was super newsworthy, it threatened millions of people. Now it threatens even more people. So I'm wondering if you've been thinking about climate change in that respect at all. Do you consider it more newsworthy or less newsworthy right now? So I'm gonna give you a very different answer to that. And that is because I'm a economic and financial journalist, right? And the one thing that I have been frustrated by for 25 years is that stupid Dow. 
right? Because the economy is such a complicated thing and it affects people in matters that are much more sophisticated than whether the Dow was up or down 500 points. But because we have a chart, because we have a board, a scoreboard, basically, we talk about the Dow. And then you look at economic numbers, which come out all the time, and some are really important, but there's one that we report on all the time, and it's the unemployment number once a month. And I kind of feel like half the information is worse than no information, because people get very attached to this moving number, and then they get obsessed with it. Now, the good and the bad about coronavirus is that there's always a chart. Now, if you look on TV, Johns Hopkins or others provide data, and you know how many people have it worldwide and how many people have died of it worldwide, how many people have it in the United States, how many people have died of it in the United States, and in a particular state, if I've got a governor on, we've got how many people had it in that place and how many people died of it. And unfortunately, it's the way we tell stories. And there's some real science to the idea that people gravitate toward colors and numbers before they gravitate toward words. And so we see these numbers, and as a result, we fixate on them. We can't, in fairness, do the same thing for climate, right? Because the things that will kill you from climate are making some other underlying conditions that you've got worse, sort of like coronavirus. But we don't have some scoreboard over a short period of time, which, again, cable news is all scoreboard over a short period of time, right? So one of the things I found most informative and helpful in climate is not just the great journalism and in-depth work that goes on, but the interactive stuff that shows people what'll happen if you do this, what'll happen if you don't do this, what are the actual effects of this, what are the effects of that. And that's what we haven't been able to do clearly. In other words, is there a way I can have climate coverage that I can drop in no matter what else is going on in the world and make that connection? We've got to get more people thinking automatically about what's the climate piece of this story? If we had a climate scoreboard, are things better or worse as a result of something that's going on right now? And we don't think that way. It's not in our DNA enough in mainstream media to automatically say, what's the effect on this? In the same way that I can look at anything in economics, I can look at any event and say, this is going to be bad for this company or good for that company. I can't do that yet with climate. I mean, it's even hard for me at this point, though, because I felt like I was really confident about how to make most stories really easily into a climate change story. And now with coronavirus, it's easy to see the parallels, but you don't yet have widespread public acceptance that you should be talking about this. You have a large, well-coordinated, from the start, campaign to get people like me to stop talking about right. this actually right. directly from the president and from his talking heads that if you talk about climate change right now that you're being insensitive or you're using this moment right, right. To, and it's really hard to counter that narrative if you're just like an independent newsletter writer and also if you're sad you know like yeah yeah <laughs> I <do>. yeah <laughs> I feel like everyone who cares about climate change has a level of empathy right now where they're all just very sad and not... Yeah, not yeah. <laughs> so this is actually full circle to a question you asked a while ago. It may be easier to point out to people why, why certain politicians are taking a particular stance and what that might be driven by, because that might be the thing that triggers the outrage. Right, The person who still can't figure out about anything in parts per million or degrees centigrade might be able to figure out as you say, corruption or influence and why someone would be telling you a false story and the relationship, you know, anybody who lived through all those years where they told us smoking was okay, they will start to understand that this is just a machine and that machine is designed to roll over people like 
Emily Atkin. I mean, that's what it's designed to do, right? It's mostly designed to run over people like you. And if it runs over me too in the process, that will be good. But if we can silence the voices that dig deep, then we win this battle. And that does resonate with my viewers. So where they may not understand the science or where they may not make all the connections, it definitely does resonate with them that someone is up to no good. And this administration has made it a little bit easier, right? Because it's so obvious and it's so out there and it's so in front, right? We've got an EPA. The EPA is an American institution that was bipartisan in its nature that brought together people who were conservationists and outdoors people and environmentalists. And they don't necessarily share the same political interests, but they all decided that wrecking the world is bad. How did that become partisan? How did people who don't share the mission of the EPA end up at the head of the EPA? Not even don't share the mission, that'd be one thing, who are completely opposed to the mission of the EPA. So this government has laid bare the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And that does make it easier for us to point out from time to time. But again, it leads you to this whole problem where you probably thought people agreed with you or share your view on climate. And you probably thought smarter people than you are in charge of this. So they'll do the right thing. And now you are clear on the fact that that's just not true. They, whoever you think they are, are not going to fix this. And coronavirus has also told us they, whoever you think they are, are not going to fix this. So the takeaway for a human consumer of media today is no one will save you. There is no one coming to save you. This is work for adults. You actually have to figure out what the right things are. And the right things are a combination of doing the right things, whether it's coronavirus or climate or smoking, and voting for the right things, whether it's coronavirus or climate. And that is what this is about. We are in a world in which there's no time now for us to look for the leaders who are going to save us. The evidence is there. It's available. You can subscribe to your newsletter. There are lots of books you can read. You helped me when I was preparing for that presidential forum to say, who should I be talking to? What should I be reading? What should I know? What questions should I ask? That is the work of all of us now. Me as a journalist, but it's, it's all of our work. I feel like one of the other really important things, and I've said this on this podcast before, is just recognizing the importance of people, journalists, and politicians who just have basic science literacy. Science isn't a subject that we all need to know about, but it is something that we need our leaders to have a certain respect for. Mm -hmm. I spoke with the director of Harvard's Sea Change Institute, and he was talking about how, you know, he's a pediatrician too, and he was basically saying that, you know, washing your hands, disinfecting things, that's good and you should do that, but that's not going to prevent the next pandemic. What's right. going to prevent the next pandemic is addressing biodiversity loss and the causes of biodiversity loss, which is climate change. And, you know, I'm being told this direct scientific connection to the yeah. question that we all want to know, which is how do we prevent this from happening again? And he's just saying climate change. And I'm saying, why don't I see that anywhere? Yeah. This is a weird situation in which the basic science about how this infection spreads, we don't have agreement on. Right, so, so you're now talking to somebody who's probably a PhD in this stuff who really thinks that in a world in which being a science denier may cost you your life in the very immediate future, right? If you look at the polling that has come out since coronavirus has been around, your belief in who you listen to and what you actually believe about this actually breaks down by political party and it actually breaks down by what cable network you consume. 
we're having weird arguments that don't even settle the how not to spread coronavirus from one person to the next. We're having arguments about the cure being worse than the cause and opening up on a date certain, which was supposed to be uh, Easter Sunday. And I'm on your side on this one, but you're asking a lot. You're asking for people who are not going to have fifth grade science conversations to be having PhD science conversations. I'm with you. As we're thinking about how we're going to vote, whether it's going to be mail-in voting and term limits and campaign spending, I wish there were some kind of a thing about scientific literacy that should play a role in our governance or at least the running of our government agencies. But we are very, very, very far from that. And I never used to think that was a bad thing because I used to think government by the people is about people making the right choices and finding the experts who can inform them on whatever topic they need to be informed on. What I didn't realize is what happens when you actually get ignorant, right? We talk about developing herd immunity to a disease. We're developing herd ignorance. It's spreading at such a rate. And all you have to do is go on Twitter and type in coronavirus, hoax, lie, whatever. And you will see the rate at which the media has bounced around on this thing and not told the right story. And unfortunately, too many of our people get their information from either cable news or social media. And there's so much garbage on there that until we start deciding that climate, among other things, is so important that that's not actually the place to get your news, that you have to do the hard work to understand a few things, I don't know where that's going to go. Are you I telling some us hopes not people... to watch your platform? No, I, I wanted to watch my platform. I don't think you should only watch my platform, and I don't yeah. think anybody should take anything I say. I think if I say something interesting on the news, and you think I'm telling you the truth, and you think it's interesting, then you need to look that up, and you need to have sources yeah. that you would go to, because anybody who thinks I know what I'm talking about is misinformed. I try to know what I'm talking about. Why I did do I even not, have you on the podcast? I do not try and mislead <laughs> my audience. But this is harder than what guys like me should understand. Yeah. So all I can do is point my viewer in the idea that this study was done by so-and-so. This article was written by so-and-so. And you'll hear me on TV. I often say it, and I've said it about you, that people should subscribe. People should follow you on social media because you need to curate your own life so that your life is not endangered. And unfortunately, this explosion of social media in the last 10 years has created a world in which your life is actually endangered because you curated wrong. I just saw a quote from Financial Times saying that coronavirus is going to put a pause on anything climate related. And in the policy discussions, climate's probably not going to be mentioned for the next six to 12 months. Um, yeah, you saw that that happened, right? That already happened. Even when coronavirus wasn't there, most of the debates didn't have climate questions, even though there was a mainstream candidate running on a climate platform, right? I, I mean, Jay Inslee wasn't a weird out there candidate. He's the governor of a state. So that was a real problem before this, and it will continue to be. And so people ask me, what do you most worry about when it comes to politics, irrespective of coronavirus? And I said, the two things that we can't fix if we don't fix now are if we get into a war or if we don't fix climate. Pretty much everything else, we can change the laws around, we can fix, we can increase wages to make up for wages that we didn't increase, we can fix healthcare. But this one's on a clock. Right, a war, once people start dying in a war, there's nothing you can do about it, and climate is on a clock. And until we make that really, really important to everybody around, I will say it has become way more important to half of America, right? I think half of America is not going to let this not be a conversation. There's no pushback. When we do this on TV, on MSNBC, zero pushback. I don't even get, maybe the people just don't tweet me anymore who think that that is taking advantage of an opportunity I shouldn't be. 
there's no pushback on having the conversation. So we in the media should remember that, that no one is saying don't have it anymore. Has there been any story that you've done semi-climate related during the coronavirus crisis that you found has particularly resonated with your audience members? It's analogies rather than stories, right? It's how people tell the story. So Jake Ward, who is our tech reporter, is really great. I've worked with him for you know a couple of networks now. And he sort of explains the way in which uh, you know an inch of water can sink a battleship. And you don't think about it that way, but that's what climate is, right? It's the inch of water, it's not the tsunami. One of the points that you make, and it's really important, is that we should all be doing lots of good things by the earth. We should be thinking about a lot of them, but I do worry about people thinking that if they do X, that that offsets the really important one, and that is fossil fuels. And it's not that planting more trees or using paper straws or looking at the plastics in the oceans or biodiversity are not crucial and important and we shouldn't be doing them. This is a multi-front battle. And without dealing with the fossil fuel part of it, you can do all the other right things and you still won't get there. And I think that's the really hard one for people to understand because the fossil fuel companies have done a really good job. I'm really amazed by them actually and somewhat impressed at their ability to convey the message that they're on the same side as the rest of us are. They too think that there should be a carbon tax. They too think that we should tax fossil fuels at a higher rate and all these things should happen, but they've worked it all out in a way that still will not fundamentally change the way we consume. And that, I don't know that my viewer likes the idea that they're being fooled, but they certainly deserve to know that they're being tricked, that this isn't about all these things. If you don't fix this one here, the coal and the oil and the natural gas, it's not going to stop the end of the world. It will not stop us from heating up. This thing starts and ends with us taking this very seriously and doing the things we need to do about climate change like we are thinking we should do about coronavirus. So the takeaway might be that when space becomes more available for this conversation, we can start to convey to people, you know how bad that was, that thing we just went through? That's what this is gonna do times 10, just not gonna look as obvious to you as that one just looked. The one thing that I know is coming and that I've been thinking about a lot, obviously, is summer, which does not just mean hotter weather. It means more extreme weather. It means uh -huh. hurricanes and wildfires and flooding and stuff that I don't know that everybody knows that you've covered a lot of because you were an extreme weather reporter. And I can't imagine how if we're still in a situation like we're in right now. Unbelievable. You yeah. You can't shelter in place during evacuation. Nope. And so... I'm wondering if you're thinking about the upcoming hurricane season, yeah. and climate change and coronavirus coverage, and just how you're thinking about maybe approaching that as a journalist when it comes along. That's a good question. I've actually talked to my bosses about this because, you know, the studies, the estimates for hurricane season have come out. And once again, they are estimated to be more severe. And the same things will happen with forest fires. Every year, they're more severe than the year before. The same thing happens with clear day flooding. So we know we're going to have a severe, I mean, last year was terrible. And we know that's going to happen. We also know that climate and coronavirus affect the poor more than they affect the wealthy, right? So this is also part of the story that all of these things, these so-called natural things, affect a certain group that is a little bit more voiceless than the rest of us. And so the reason this doesn't get fixed is that when rich people's houses get burned down or destroyed by hurricanes or flooded, stuff happens. Things change. Code changes. Buildings are put on stilts, plumbing is changed, all sorts of things happen. But because this happens to poor people as much as it does, it doesn't actually influence thought. And you'll see that with hurricanes too, right? There are hurricanes 
all over the place. There are tornadoes all over the place. When they hit places that you know of where people with wealth live, they get more coverage than the ones that poor people live in. And I think that this is, again, another intersection of this topic, that when you're talking about climate change, when you're talking about natural disasters, when you're talking about wars, when you're talking about healthcare, a lot of these issues, it does come down to inequity. If you have money, you can mitigate these things for longer than if you don't have money. And that part of the conversation is here and has not been squeezed out by coronavirus. It's actually been underscored by coronavirus, that poor people who live in dense populations who don't have choices don't get to stay home. They will die at a higher rate. They don't seek health care. That story is another way to tell the story of climate, right? Refugees poor people, people who live in sunken areas that flood, people who don't live in the places that they can mitigate climate change. So I'm thinking a lot about it. If it happens, we're gonna have to cover it this year and I will be at the front end of that, but we have to start to remember the through line to all of these stories is still inequity. Oh yeah, absolutely. We touched on that too in the episode three of the podcast. I had a climate justice advocate on, you know, he represents about 70 different frontline community groups. And it was maybe week two of the coronavirus crisis when I interviewed him and he had already lost 10 people in his network to coronavirus. Unbelievable. My last question for you is basically just, as a journalist who has covered both stories, climate change and coronavirus, there aren't actually a lot of us out there. What are you learning about these stories from covering both. Has coronavirus influenced how you think about climate change at all, or has climate change influenced how you think about coronavirus at all as a story? In so far as, that's my dog too, you can hear. Um, (laughs) Both stories have influenced me, but maybe coronavirus will influence my climate reporting this way. And that is that in the end, there are rights and wrongs, right? This coronavirus story has actually shown us that this wasn't inevitable. This didn't have to happen the way it happened. And we continue to hear from the administration that they did the right thing from day one. And then we continue to have, as this is 2020, we've got all the tape. We know what they all said when they didn't do the right thing. And so it becomes very easy to call a spade a spade. And coronavirus has made that very easy. And that instinct, I think, needs to stay with us for climate. We've all gotten there. You were there before some of us were, but many of us have gotten to the point where let's just be honest about what this conversation is. It's not inevitable. It's not that nobody knew that climate change was a bad thing or that it was happening or that burning fossil fuels was going to be the case. Let's just be honest about it now. Let's call out those who weren't honest. Let's hold those to account and let's support those who will hold them to account. And the one thing about coronavirus, which by the way, if it had never hit America, would never have been a mainstream story. It would have been some side story that you got in your international minute or whatever when you watched your news, but it became our story. So you can call it the Wuhan virus if you want or the China virus, but it is our story now. That's the thing with climate. It is our story. It's not a fringe movement. You can discount the people who are the messengers of it all you want, but the fact is it's here and it's all around you. So that honesty, what coronavirus allowed us to do was to say to our viewers after every press briefing, that's just not true. You were just misled and their bad actions have led to these outcomes. Can you imagine if we treated climate the same way? Imagine if we were on a regular basis able to say, that's not true, that's misleading, and that information has led to these outcomes. So it might give us a purity of thought around climate that I'd like to try and apply once we get a bit of an opportunity to do so. I like that optimism, and I like that you came on here and shared it 
with us. Thanks for doing climate reporting on television. It's really cool to see. And thanks for coming on this podcast and talking about it. The journalism part is my favorite subject, obviously, to talk about. So I appreciate your insights. Well, you have made a lot of us better and smarter and keep doing it. And thank you for all you do. And we'll we'll get this right eventually. Yeah, one day. (laughs) One day. Let's just hope it's not too late. Thanks for checking out the Heated Podcast. We're producing this in collaboration with Drilled, and thank you to Amy Westervelt for her partnership. We would not have been able to go from idea to shows on your phone in a couple weeks without her support. So thank you, Amy. Amy is dope. Amy is my spirit journalist. Please check out drillednews.com, check out her podcast, Drilled, and check out her podcast, Hot Take, with Mary Hegler, who was on episode five. They're both fantastic. You won't regret it. One quick thing, though, before we wrap the series. As you heard Ali say, the need for climate coverage was massive before COVID arrived. Now this pandemic has blotted out the sun and, understandably, is dominating the news. So no more climate coverage, right? Well, that's convenient for the fossil fuel industry and polluters because they're not stopping. And as we've shown on the series, everything that's bad about COVID-19 is made worse by climate change. We keep hearing, now's not the time to talk about climate change. But it has to be the time, because we're out of time. We made the heated podcast to make sure we didn't waste this moment in time. We're a 100% independent project with no corporate or foundation backing. Listener support is the vital element that makes this happen. You are the vital element. There has never been a more important time to support news that matters to you. So please, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider supporting the team behind it through our GoFundMe page. 100% of what you give goes to production costs and supporting the four-person team producing this series. Anything you can give would be appreciated, but people have been saying that $30 or $60 works for them. That breaks down to 5 or 10 bucks per podcast. Your individual action right now to help cover these costs will make a difference. Please go to GoFundMe and search Heated Podcast. That's GoFundMe and Heated Podcast. This podcast is produced by Heated with support from Limina House. Our production team is my co-executive producer, Michael Elsesser. Paul Chufo is our engineer and producer, and Jessica France runs our operations. I'm Emily Atkin, your host and the founder of Heated, a newsletter for people pissed off about the climate crisis. Check us out at heated.world. We made everything we've done available for free during the COVID crisis. Thanks for being here.